You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. In an unusual lapse, Microsoft briefly let a Bing backend server exposed online. Sources say the CIA has concluded that Russian President Putin is personally involved in setting the direction of operations designed to influence the U.S. elections. The deal to spin out TikTok Global to avoid a U.S. ban may not be enough. Europe looks for more control over tech companies. Activision's hack seems to be a mere rumor. Ben Yellen on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Our guest is Ramon Pinero from BlackBerry on the challenges of coordinating public services during the pandemic. And a dark overlord cops a plea. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, September 22nd, 2020. Researchers at WizCase on September 13th found an exposed backend server that exposed data from Microsoft's Bing mobile app. Data is believed to have been exposed between September 10th and 16th, at which point Microsoft secured the server. The server sustained several meow attacks while it was exposed. ZDNet calls it a rare security misstep for Redmond, but notes that no particularly sensitive, personally identifiable information appears to have been compromised. WizCase said they found the following data exposed. Search terms and clear text, including the ones entered in private mode, location coordinates, the exact time the search was executed, Firebase notification tokens, coupon data, a partial list of the URLs the users visited from search results, device model for the phone or tablet, operating system, and three separate unique ID numbers assigned to each user found in the data. ADID, which appears to be a unique ID for a Microsoft account, device ID, and device hash. Sources tell the Washington Post that a CIA assessment completed at the end of August concluded that high-level Russian leaders, including President Putin, were directly involved in attempts to influence the U.S. presidential election. The Post reports that President Putin, while interested in disruption and Fisher generally, is seeking to denigrate former Vice President Biden. This is consistent with either a desire to see President Trump re-elected and with an outraged opposition, or a desire to see former Vice President Biden take office in a severely weakened political condition. ByteDance's arrangement to retain a majority controlling stake in TikTok Global with most of the remaining shares going first to Oracle and second to Walmart, may not pass muster with the U.S. government. 
According to the New York Times, the administration has signaled that it wants ByteDance out of the picture as far as control is concerned and that the large chunk of ByteDance shares owned by American investors won't cut it. It's not enough to allay concerns about Chinese control of the social platform. A Wall Street Journal article sees U.S. adminiversions about TikTok and WeChat as an instance of a continuing trend toward the fracturing of the Internet along national lines. China's Great Firewall is the best known of such efforts, but other national and supranational groups are moving for various reasons in similar directions. The European Union, Computing Reports, is seeking expansive authority to regulate tech companies. Facebook says, according to Vice, that if it has to put up with the restrictive data handling practices the EU's one-stop shop for the company, Ireland's Data Protection Commission, is seeking to enforce, Facebook may just stop doing business in Europe altogether, leaving some 400 million users wanting their Facebook fix. FedTech preaches automation as the next frontier of a zero-trust cyber offensive. The Department of Defense, a cutting-edge cybersecurity player, just ordered a new tool that deploys advanced probability-based mathematics to mime decision-making. Automation can detect and classify threats, halt incursions and data transfers, and free up human analysts for other tasks. As an added bonus, groups that invest in automation end up spending an average of $3.5 million less on breaches, and that's nothing to sneeze at. So, gamers, do you play Activision titles like the popular Call of Duty? Well, there's a rumor floating around that about half a million Call of Duty player accounts have been exposed by parties unknown who've hacked Activision. Now, Activision has consistently denied that it was hacked and that any accounts were lost. The story seems to be spreading in social media, notably YouTube, but there seems little to it. The claim is that account owners get locked out, lose their progress in the game, and so on. Even though Activision reassures its users that there's nothing to worry about, the company does urge vigilance and sensible precautions against losing control of your account. And finally, remember the Dark Overlord, or the Dark Overlords? It's hard to distinguish the fallen cyber angels when they're working together, and in any case, their name is probably hashtag Legion. Anywho, one Dark Overlord, Nathan Francis Wyatt, 39 years old and a British subject, took a guilty plea yesterday to U.S. federal charges of conspiring to commit aggravated identity theft and computer fraud, the Washington Post reports. He was involved in the theft of medical records, client files, and personal information from companies. The dark overlord demanded between $75,000 and $300,000 worth of Bitcoin to return the information. The companies didn't pay, although they incurred costs associated with restoring data and operations. Mr. Wyatt received five years and was ordered to pay $1.5 million in restitution to his victims. In fairness to Mr. Wyatt, he's said to have shown signs of remorse during his allocution and sentencing, telling the court, quote, I can promise you that I'm out of that world. I don't want to see another computer for the rest of my life. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, 
and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Among the many things the global COVID-19 pandemic has brought to the fore is the need for fast, secure, trusted communications between government agencies at all levels with their constituents. Ramon Panero is vice president of services at BlackBerry, where he works directly with public safety organizations across the country to ensure officials have the tools and support necessary to communicate across teams and with citizens in real time. I think that we find ourselves in a unique place, certainly better where we were before, which is when I am from California and the way I grew up uh, is where public safety was really being delivered um, to normal people in the way of interrupting my Saturday morning cartoons. I'd be eating cereal and be watching cartoons and all of a sudden I'd see an emergency broadcast message occur on the screen. It would uh, blare and interrupt uh, what I was watching And to that end, I really was the extent of it, right? There was some letters that scrolled across the screen that said, hey, in an emergency, you're going to hear a loud tone and uh, you better heed our warning. And that was really about it. Now, though, and I think that with the advent of different technologies and with uh, greater public awareness, the community at large expects a uh, more comprehensive message, more rapid and more real-time Uh, information about any threat that uh, faces them around public safety. Hmm. So that could be anything from hazardous vapor material leak, right? Let's say that there's a a plume near my house uh, or an earthquake or, you know, quite topical COVID-19 guidance, right? Right. I live in a county that was hot. It was a hot spot here in Northern California. And um, the way in which my county communicated with me was uh, very rapidly through uh, my mobile device and sending me messages about safety guidelines. 
You know, just yesterday I was uh, on my way home and we were having some heavy rains here. And sure enough, up on my phone popped an emergency alert message uh, that said, you know, we're under a flood advisory. Um, and I, and it, so is that the kind of thing that we're talking about today in the modern age? That's right. And so um, that flood advisory, and we can automate all of these uh, workflows, if you will, but that flood advisory um, is important because not only is it providing you with the awareness of where to avoid um, the flood, if you will, but um, the community comes to expect now this type of warning. The, the fires that occurred here in Northern California, if you will, the community really wanted to know, and some systems were utilized quite effectively around how do I, what's my escape route, right? When should I evacuate? Hmm. And, and, and such that if I'm not receiving that message anymore, these phone calls are going straight to, you know, Office of Emergency Services, to your municipality saying, hey, didn't warn me this was happening. What do I do? So there's quite an expectation that's been built up in the public. There's a county here in Northern California, Contra Costa County. They exercise their systems every Wednesday. And um, if for one reason or another, a Wednesday gets skipped, right, or they suspend, they really hear it from the community. Hey, we didn't hear it. We didn't hear the system uh, this Wednesday. Is everything okay? Right? And... That's music to our ears because that means that the community's invested, they know what to do when they hear a warning, and the uh, Office of Emergency Services in that particular county is, is kind of ready to go um, when the next crisis occurs. That's Ramon Panero from BlackBerry. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat podcast. Hello, Ben. Hi, Dave. Uh, article from Wired. This is uh, an editorial written by David Chavern. Um, caught my eye and uh, thought it'd make for good discussion between you and I. It's titled, Section 230 is a government license to build rage machines. Um that's a provocative title there. Ben, can you uh, take us through what uh, what they're going at here? Yeah, it certainly grabs your eye, uh, doesn't it, as soon as you see that, uh, that headline? Uh, <laughs> so what he's talking about is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. That uh, statute protects what are called interactive computer services, like search engines, but also like social media companies, from any legal liability resulting from the posts of their users, meaning... You know, if somebody gets wind of a conspiracy from Facebook and commits a murder, Facebook can't be held accountable for that because they're not held accountable for their editorial decisions. Mm. The rationale for this is, uh, you know, to allow these companies to do proper content moderation without worrying about legal liability. So they can make their uh, own interpretation of which content to ban uh, and which content to allow and uh, that, you know, at least in theory, will foster uh, a more robust free speech community online. What this article is getting at, which I think is a, a very serious problem, is because companies like Facebook don't face this threat of legal liability, they make decisions really to drive their own profits, which for them means getting page views. And to get page views, you want to steer people to sensationalized stories, which is what, mm -hmm. uh, at least it's alleged here, that their algorithm does. 
Uh, and that's leading people to, frankly, some bizarre, conspiratorial, false information. Uh, right. And it's really corrupting our political discourse. Um, you know, you'll see these anecdotes of uh, interviews on the street where people will talk about conspiracy theories, and they're always sourced back to Facebook. My Facebook friend posted this, and I posted it to you know my 300 followers, and um, you know all, all of a sudden it goes around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what this op-ed is saying is that's not healthy for our democracy. Facebook should not be shielded from this liability. If they are going to have this freedom to make editorial decisions, they should be held accountable for the resulting harm. Uh, and I th- certainly think there's there's merit in that, whether you ultimately agree or disagree with the conclusion. What's the flip side of that? If if uh, Facebook does have legal liability, what, how would that uh, you know possibly change the way the service runs? Well, I mean, I think what they would say is uh, they would constantly fear lawsuits. It would affect, uh, they would ban more accounts. Uh, they would stifle free speech because they'd always be worried about uh, liability. And, you know, they'd be so worried about content moderation decisions that they might as well, you know, not have a platform in the first place. So, you know, they wouldn't have that public arena to foster the marketplace of ideas. There is certainly something to that. And again, that's why the law was justified in the first place. But I think you have to strike a balance here. Uh, You know, it's one thing to allow them leeway in good faith to moderate content as they see fit to make their own decisions about what is and is not appropriate on uh, their website. But, you know, I think a company like Facebook, which has as large of a reach as it does and permeates so deeply into the fabric of our society needs to be held to account in some way for its role in corrupting our democracy with with false information. Yeah, um, and it does seem like Facebook is a – the way that the Facebook algorithm works, as you said, in order to drive engagement, uh, it just amplifies this stuff. Right, right. It doesn't play a passive role in spreading these conspiracy theories. It plays an active role. And it's not just – you know, it's not just true for Facebook. You see it with things like YouTube where – you know, I've observed this phenomenon where particularly young men start to search for video game. You know, I don't know what the young people do these days, but largely for some <laughs> reason they seem to like to watch other people play video games. Right. Um, and, you know, because of the way the, the YouTube algorithm works, that leads them to some pretty dark political videos. Um, you know, things like white nationalism and uh, the alt-right movement. Just because a lot of people who have been into gaming have felt they're, uh, you know, isolated and are looking for a community, they've been attracted Mm -hmm. to those types of videos, and the algorithm uh, kind of does its thing. Uh, Hmm. And that's that's not good for any of us. Um, So, you know, I don't think there is an easy solution here because overturning Section Two Thirty would have its own complications. Uh, I don't think that's a that's an easy answer. But I think the first step is recognizing this problem, that there yeah. is a phenomenon of misinformation out there and that these companies are playing an active role in spreading this information, even if they're claiming that, you know, it's not our fault, we're doing our best, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out they have a financial incentive to do so. It turns out they certainly do. I mean, I think it's, you know, it all comes down to the bottom line and they know that they Mm -hmm. can make money with views, whether those views are for legitimate news stories or whether they're for conspiratorial nonsense. 
Um, yeah. it's still about it's still about making money. Uh, and you know, in a lot of industries in this country, we put regulations on people that stop them from maximizing their profits because they do harm to the public good. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure uh, if we had no environmental standards, for example, more companies would be extremely profitable because uh, they could just you know dump all their coal or whatever in our river streams. But <laughs> right, we've decided right, right. as a as a society to to put some guardrails on that, and perhaps right. it's time to apply that sort of logic to online disinformation because I really do think it's becoming um, a a larger and larger problem All right, well uh, good insights as always Uh, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us Thank you Dave That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time, keep you informed, and it's hypoallergenic. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Guru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. <laughs>